From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. When I read the history of St. Mary's, what I see is a community of lay people who are unwilling to let their neighborhood and their parish die. And neighbors who came together and fought for their youth, they fought for their families and the mothers and the poor, and they fought for the parish itself. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to be speaking with Susan Bigelow-Reynolds. She's an assistant professor of Catholic studies at Candler School of Theology at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Today we're talking about her recent book, People Get Ready, Ritual, Solidarity, and Lived Ecclesiology in Catholic Roxbury. Susan Bigelow-Reynolds, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you so much for having me. It's really an honor and a joy to be here. Well, there's a lot that I want to dive into and dig into in your book, People Get Ready. But I think as a way of setting the stage for that, let's tell our listeners a little bit about the parish that you look at in detail in this book, St. Mary of the Angels in Roxbury. Tell us a little bit about that parish and how you came to be involved in it. Sure. I'll talk first about how I got there, and then I'll talk about the parish itself. I arrived at St. Mary of the Angels, which is a very tiny, extraordinarily culturally and linguistically and racially diverse parish in Roxbury, which is a sort of a quote-unquote inner city neighborhood in Boston. In 2011, when I was a first-year master's student in theology at Boston College, and I arrived there because I had just moved up from the Rio Grande Valley with very few dollars to my name, and I frankly needed a place to live that cost essentially nothing. And I was forwarded an announcement by a friend, a listserv announcement, seeking a graduate student willing to live in the parish house, an empty rectory of this small parish in inner city Boston for free in exchange for 13 hours a week of work. And that sounded great to me. And so sight unseen, I jumped at this opportunity and without even having moved or to Boston or having lived there before, I signed up and said, yes, this sounds great. And that really ended up being a tremendous gift because I did not know Roxbury, which is a section of Boston with kind of this notorious history. If you're somebody that's lived in the city for a long time, I didn't know the second thing about Roxbury. I didn't know about St. Mary of the Angels. I honestly didn't even really have a good feel for the Catholic Church in Boston, which was also a really unique context at that time in the wake of the sex abuse crisis. It was just this earnest, like saying yes to the unknown. And so I moved into essentially the unoccupied rectory with another graduate student. And we were sort of ministers of presence. So we did really ordinary kind of, we assembled the bulletin and assembled the announcements and taught catechesis and taught 
Spanish classes and led communion services on days when there wasn't a priest to say mass in the small chapel. And it just provided a sense of welcome to this community. So you've talked to us now a little bit about how you came to be involved in St. Mary of the Angels, but maybe take us back in time and to 1908 and the founding of the church and where it grew from there. So the parish was established in 1906. It was carved out of the parochial territory of a neighboring larger parish during this time of flourishing Catholic in-migration from countries predominantly in Western Europe. And so what was then at the time a small streetcar suburb of Boston, it wasn't formally part of the city of Boston yet, Roxbury was filled with immigrants from Ireland and Germany and Italy. It seemed like there was this glorious Catholic future for Roxbury. And so bunches and bunches of parishes were established. Way too many parishes were established. And one of those, in fact, the smallest parish was St. Mary of the Angels. And for the first two years of their existence, they worshipped together in a streetcar barn down the street until finally... In 1908, the basement of the church had been completed, and that was as far as they got. (laughs) All of the fundraising that they had did, all of the donations from the community had only materialized enough cash to build the basement. And so they thought, well, we'll build a roof over the basement, and surely as the funds come in, we'll build the rest of the church. They had this sort of neo-Gothic cathedral-esque space envisioned. So in 1908, the new parishioners of St. Mary of the Angels moved into their basement church. And more than 110 years later, it is still a basement church. So the funds were never raised because the community remained, frankly, fairly poor and also somewhat ecclesially marginal. Not long after the parish was established, the neighborhood turned over demographically and became a predominantly Jewish area. And then in the 30s, 40s, 50s, Roxbury became the first site of Black settlement in the city of Boston. And so the neighborhood changed racially in the 1960s. A huge influx of Puerto Ricans moved into the neighborhood and then Dominicans and then a bunch of Laotian refugees and lots of other groups. So that by the 1980s, the parish was serving a community of people from over 40 nations which is pretty incredible when you think about, frankly, how small this community was. It wasn't like thousands and thousands of people. This was a few hundred people. But somehow they managed to sustain this really vibrant community in this basement church that was radically diverse. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Susan Bigelow-Reynolds. She's Assistant Professor of Catholic Studies at Candler School of Theology at Emory University. We're speaking today about her recent book, People Get Ready, Ritual, Solidarity, and Lived Ecclesiology in Catholic Roxbury. Well, as we're setting the table here for my listeners, maybe it would be helpful at this point to talk about the difference between national parishes and territorial parishes. Can you give us a quick definition of that distinction? Absolutely. So throughout predominantly the 19th century, 20th century, as immigration from Western and then Southern and Central Europe increased, you started to have this American Catholic community made up of people from many, many nations who spoke many languages, who were coming to the United States, not only with their own customs and traditions and saints and faith practices and priests, right? That that required a lot of very specialized ministry that was almost overwhelming to envision, right? How do we minister to such a diverse community? 
One of those strategies, not the only strategy, but one of those strategies was something called the national parish. And it had an analog called an ethnic parish. But essentially, a national parish was a parish established to serve a particular group of people, typically on the basis of language. So if you are, if you have family from a place like Chicago, for example, you might be familiar with the single city block that has a Hungarian parish and an Italian parish and a Slovak parish all on the same within 20 yards of each other. My own family hails from a very small town in central Illinois called Streeter. And my, for generations, they had been raised, my family, in a Slovak parish. In fact, the first Catholic Slovak parish in the United States, or so they claim, St. Stephen's, which has since been merged with the other Catholic parishes in town. And so the national parish and then the ethnic parish, which was, its, I guess, racial analog, which were parishes established to serve, let's say, Black Catholic communities, were essentially a way of dealing with diversity. They were a pastoral strategy. On the other hand, territorial parishes or geographical parishes are the default, right? They are parishes that are established to serve everybody living within the parish boundaries. And that includes everyone, right? There may be communities that speak English and Spanish. Well, technically, it's the responsibility of that parish to serve both of those communities and anyone else who happens to be residing within the parish boundaries. So this helps us now to begin to understand St. Mary of the Angels in Roxbury there in this enclave in Boston. And what we get from this parish is it's a territorial parish, which means that it's there to serve multiple communities. But one of the things that you tell us in your beginning analysis of People Get Ready is that oftentimes the default for that is that you don't really have a parish where these various communities become co-laborers in the vineyard, if I may borrow that phrase, but instead they become micro-communities within the parish that have their own, for want of a better word, kind of fiefdoms. Now, before we go any further, have I understood that danger, that obstacle in the way that you laid it out, or would you say it in a different way? I think you're exactly right. The only thing I would add is that it's a danger, but it's also often a practical necessity in the same way that national parishes were established to serve people with specific linguistic and cultural needs because there wasn't necessarily a better or more ready solution at the time. Often territorial parishes become these sort of communities. You have your English speaking community and your Spanish speaking community. And those in a way, that's not a bad thing, right? I met somebody once, a student who was talking about, he was from Arizona and his pastor had dissolved the language specific masses. There was an English and a Spanish speaking community and made all masses bilingual. And it was a disaster, right? Because the Spanish speaking community had lost that community of solidarity and cultural companionship and a sense of home. The problem is that there are very few structures or opportunities for those communities to meet in the middle, right? To, to carve out space of commonality, of community, of solidarity outside of their bubbles, so to speak. And so if I'm hearing you correctly, this was a strategy for trying to have parishes with very different traditions, very different languages in many cases, work and get along. And as we're moving towards our first break, the kind of rhythm of a parish like that, as you said, is of a community of communities. And as we're thinking of this, and in our next segment, we'll begin to 
differentiate how St. Mary of the Angels was different from this community of communities model. But as we're still setting the stage here, so it sounds as if this strategy for allowing these different communities to get along, it leads to a certain institutional view of these parishes at the diocesan and archdiocesan level. And I wonder if you could maybe speak about how dioceses began to see these churches that were territorial, they had multiple communities in them, but the diocese was still seeing those multiple communities as fractured and differentiated. Could you speak to that? Yeah, I mean, I think from what I've observed, most often what that leads to is this understanding of diversity is first and foremost a challenge, right? We have this idea that, oh, diversity is a gift, which is true. And note that I'm talking about diversity, right? Which is something I get into in the book, right? We shy away from the language of concrete difference. Instead, we talk about diversity because it sounds a lot more benign and nicer. Um, But Predominantly, I think this sort of internal diversity in parishes is looked at as a pastoral challenge to be solved with institutional resources and best practices. And we don't have a lot of resources, I think, for empowering communities to sort of read and tell their own story on the ground and to develop modes and methods and practices of solidarity among those various communities that exist in parish. Well, and as you're doing these analyses of the ways in which dioceses look at parishes like this, you introduce a term that was new to me, and it may be something that you've come up with yourself. You look at the question of uniformity, and then you also introduce this idea of Euroformity. And I wonder if you could quickly tell us what you're getting at there when you're talking about uniformity and Euroformity as we're looking at this multi-ethnic, multicultural model of territorial parishes. Sure. I think What's important to bear in mind is that while the Catholic Church in the United States is profoundly diverse in every possible way, Catholic leadership is not diverse in the same way. And that goes for Catholic leadership in the United States, and it goes for Catholic leadership on the global level as well. And so the result of that is that there are very powerful norms (laughs) that function almost like mandates, right? When we think about what makes good liturgy, what's an efficient meeting, what's a good committee look or act or sound like, right? We haven't, but when I say we, right, I'm talking about often university educated, seminary or graduate school educated Catholics who have been formed into the rich history and tradition of the church but often by teachers and texts that look a lot like we do. We're formed into this understanding of orthodoxy as a kind of white Euro-American normativity and things that fall outside of that. A gospel mass, for example, are other. They may be good other, but they're still other. So there's a sense in which talking about unity which is a good thing, which we want to talk, we want to talk about unity, very often becomes implicitly a conversation about uniformity. And that uniformity often takes the shape of the sort of Euro-American inheritance that we've come to see as normative in the American Catholic Church. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Nault. We're speaking today with Susan Bigelow-Reynolds. She's Assistant Professor of Catholic Studies at Candler School of Theology at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Today we're talking about her recent book, People Get Ready, Ritual, Solidarity, and Lived Ecclesiology in Catholic Roxbury. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Today we're speaking with Susan Bigelow-Reynolds. She is Assistant Professor of Catholic Studies at Candler School of Theology at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Today we're talking about her recent book, People Get Ready, Ritual, Solidarity, and Lived Ecclesiology in Catholic Roxbury. Well, Professor Reynolds, in our first segment, we talked about the general state of the arrangement of Catholic parishes over the last 150, 175 years, where the Catholic hierarchy in America took multiple strategies. Sometimes they would arrange parishes along national or ethnic lines. The people that speak the same language would all go to the same parish. And sometimes they would have a model that was territorial, which means everyone within a certain geographic area, regardless of nationality and language, would be expected to go to the same parish. But even within those parishes, oftentimes there would be, as you described it, a community of communities where there wouldn't be real integration, and I'm meaning that at all levels, of these various communities, but rather they coexisted alongside each other in a sort of strategy of survival. But when you encountered St. Mary of the Angels in Roxbury, there in Boston, you encountered a different sort of community, one that had transcended the community of communities obstacle and had managed to actually, dare I say, become a community of solidarity. I wonder if you could begin to describe what some of the distinctions and differences were for Roxbury that are different from these other models that we've described. That's a great question. And so you've laid out the situation really perfectly, I have to say. The thing that so intrigued me about St. Mary of the Angels when I first arrived there, and the reason why it took on this place in not only in my own life, but my own theological formation wrote my dissertation on St. Mary of the Angels, and then, of course, did a bunch of archival work. And now there's a book really focused on the experience of this community is because it was so different than any community that I had ever been part of before. And I knew that immediately because my first Sunday there, the English Mass was at nine o'clock and the Spanish Mass was at 1115. And as the English Mass let out, Everybody just sort of hung around. (laughs) They went over to the parish house for coffee and donuts. They hung out in the parking lot. They hung out in the back of this very small basement church. They hung out in the stairwell. And gradually, all of the folks from the Spanish Mass came early because a lot of them are very involved to set up, to be in the choir, to decorate, et cetera. And people started 
talking and hugging and catching up and laughing. And I thought, of course, as a newcomer, right? I'm like, what's going, did, what's going on here, right? Do, they, do these people know each other? <laughs> do these people like each other? And it turned out as I delved into the history of this parish that not only did they know each other, not only did they like each other, but these were folks that had forged deep relationships over decades and decades. They'd fought for the youth of the neighborhood during periods of searing gang violence. They'd fought to keep the parish open in 2004 when it ended up on the closure list. And they continue to fight for the life of the parish and the neighborhood and the community. And I was so struck by the seeming authenticity, right, of this love that seemed to exist in this really diverse space. And it just drew me and intrigued me, right? It evoked all of these theological questions in my mind, most of which were forms of what is going on here. And it's incredible, right, that in this, as Willie Jennings says, right, in, in this uh, Christianity, a relationship founded on radical love, why are we so intrigued when we see that love in action? This should be the norm, right? But it, and nevertheless, I, I saw what felt to me like the love that seems to lie at the heart of the Christian tradition performed in action in a very unlikely space in this tiny basement parish. To get to your question, I think some of the defining factors in a community that sort of, as you said, transcended these siloed communities and had become this space of solidarity was that virtually every meeting, every committee was bilingual. Everything was translated in real time. So this went for the parish council. This went for the social justice cluster. This went for the liturgy committee. Everything was translated in real time, which meant that everything happened very slowly. <laughs> we can talk about some of the upshots later, but everything was bilingual. Every committee included members of all of the sort of primary constituent language and racial groups that were part of the parish. It meant that this was a place where there was tremendous lay leadership and lay empowerment, predominantly out of necessity, right? Because this is, as we, I'm sure we'll talk about, this is a, a place in the city that was had suffered for decades and decades, not only from a lot of municipal and political neglect, but a lot of ecclesial neglect as well. So out of necessity, this was a place where there was a lot of lay agency. And it, it was a place also where there was a really high focus on celebration. <laughs> and that's not something that I touch on too much in the book. But in retrospect, I realized that one thing that distinguishes St. Mary's from a lot of other communities was this constant sense of celebration and socializing and parties in a really inclusive way. It was very beautiful. Well, and I'm going to ask for the indulgence of our listeners right now, because as we're talking about the parish, I'm now going to zoom out to the 30,000-foot view and ask a very technical sort of meta question, and that is in 1968, the Second Vatican Council happened. And in the wake of that council, a shift of emphasis occurred on the role of the parish in the life of the Catholic Church. I wonder if you could line out for us briefly, what were some of the key aspirations? And I'm using that term, that word very decidedly here. What were some of the key aspirations for the parish in the wake of Vatican II and the parish generally as a construct in Catholic life? Sure. I would say that the primary shift that happened after Vatican II with respect to the parish was that there was a growing expectation among Catholic faithful that the parish become not just a place that was their sacramental center of gravity, not just a place that was a cultural and devotional center of gravity, 
but also a community. And when I say community, I really mean that in kind of the sociological sense. And parishes were always communities, right? And in some way before Vatican II, they were these really dense, really thick communities. But what I mean is that after Vatican II, there was a sense that the parish was a project, right? That we were the people of God on a journey together. And that meant that in some way, the parish wasn't just a place that we go to. It was something that we were building. It was something that we were responsible for. It was a place where the priest and laity were co-responsible for the mission of the church. It was a place that wasn't just about sacramental participation or religious formation. It was also a place to work out the meaning of the church in the world. It was no longer a place where you defended yourself against Protestant encroachment or secularism, right? It was a place where in, in say we, we tried to figure out what it meant to encounter the world, which was really the call, the kind of crux of the call of Vatican II with respect to the church's mission. And yet a lot of this also went uninterrogated or unarticulated which I think accounts for some of the whiplash that people felt at the level of the parish after Vatican II. In some way, the ground shifted and people started having a lot of different expectations about what a parish was supposed to be. But we didn't really have the structures, the conversations in place to, to work those things out. And so as a result, after Vatican II, it was this time of, I think, as people remember the 70s, I don't remember the 70s because I was not alive in the 70s, but so I hear the 70s were a time of, right, a lot of ebbs and flows, a lot of whiplash in some way about what is a parish supposed to be? And I think a lot of that stems from the fact that after Vatican II, we had this expectation that now a parish wasn't just a place we go to, it was a place that we built. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Susan Bigelow-Reynolds. She's Assistant Professor of Catholic Studies at Candler School of Theology at Emory University. Today we're talking about her recent book, People Get Ready, Ritual, Solidarity, and Lived Ecclesiology in Catholic Roxbury. I'm so grateful for the way in which you answered that question, because you have set up perfectly my next question, and that is, so when we look at St. Mary of the Angels in Roxbury, in many ways, it was living out this aspiration of Vatican II, in the sense that it wasn't simply an insular, inward-looking Catholic parish, but rather it was a parish where—and you use this wonderful image of the borderlands or the sort of marshy spaces between well-defined terrains. And so it was exactly that, where the borders between the parish and the community around it were very porous. And in many ways, it saw itself as a project of the community, not just as a project of Catholicism within the community. Now, all of these are my rephrasings of your words, and I want to check in. Have I got it right or would you say it in a different way? I think that you said it perfectly. Well, with that being the case then, tell us a little bit about what some of the ministries were that were happening there in Roxbury from St. Mary of the Angels. What was it concretely doing with and for the community that made this sort of marshy borderland really come alive with life and with abundance? In order to appreciate, I think, what St. Mary's was and became after the Second Vatican Council, it's important to talk a little bit about what it was right before, especially in terms of leadership and authority. And so I described at the beginning of the program some of the cultural and demographic shifts that had conditioned the neighborhood at the time at St. Mary's, what was happening during those years, during the first half of the 20th century, was that they had the same, by all accounts, 
tyrannical pastor for almost 40 years. And that's really stunning when you think about it. This is a territorial parish. This is a regular diocesan parish. And they had the same pastor for almost 40 years, I think 37 years. And what was fascinating was that if you go back in the archdiocesan archives, you have mountains of letters from community members, parishioners, men and women alike, fellow priests, local vendors and businessmen, all kinds of folks who are writing in for decades and saying, this guy is a tyrant. He's impossible to work with. He's mean. He's stingy. He's abhorrent to our Jewish neighbors. He gives long, rambling, insane homilies. He's driving people away. Get this guy out of here. And what was fascinating to me about that, and I'll just add this quickly, was that I think it it foreshadowed a dynamic that we've come to appreciate in the negative sense more and more now that we're taking a hard look at the clergy sex abuse crisis, which is the the church leader's tendency often to shuffle bad priests, not just sexually abusive priests, but just bad priests off to not only far-flung locations, but also inner cities. And inner cities became, in a real way, a dumping ground for inadequate priests and inadequate clergy. So by the 1960s, and I would say an underappreciated historical conjuncture, is the conjuncture of Vatican II with the war on poverty. And in studying the history of the Archdiocese of Boston, you really see how the response to Vatican II was really conditioned by the war on poverty and a concern for lifting people out of poverty a concern for the inner city. So a lot of what Cardinal Cushing tried to put in place after the Second Vatican Council was really conditioned by this, I think, a really genuine concern for alleviating what he would call the plight of the inner city and often the plight of Roxbury. Roxbury was this stand-in for the Boston inner city at large. So by the 60s, this tyrannical pastor was out of the picture, thankfully. But St. Mary the Angels was in really sorry shape. And what was very interesting to recognize, reading the outcomes of the Second Vatican Council through the lens of an urban parish, was how much these liturgical reforms and structural reforms, in a sense, empowered this community that was really aching and really in distress to assume a sense of real responsibility, not only for the parish, but also for the community at large. So one of one of my favorite stories was, as any of your listeners who are Catholic or Catholic adjacent may know, the Second Vatican Council was the point at which Mass went from Latin to the local vernacular. And a bunch of other liturgical reforms, suffice it to say, came out of Vatican II as well. And one of those reforms was the Saturday anticipatory mass. So, of course, we have Sunday mass, but you can also now at most parishes, you can go to mass on Saturday evening and fulfill your obligation. Well, in the late 1960s, this was an outcome of the council that was still under development at the time. And so the newly established St. Mary's Parish Pastoral Council, which is another outcome of Vatican II that the folks at St. Mary's really seized, wrote to Cardinal Cushing requesting permission to celebrate Sunday Mass on Saturday. And the reasons that they gave were really fascinating and really telling. They said, just like anybody else, 
our people deserve a day of rest. But unlike many other people, our folks don't have access to beach houses or opportunities to escape to the Cape or really easy access outside of the city whatsoever. And they especially can't do it when Sunday, their only day off work, requires them to remain in the city to go to Mass. So they said, we would like to offer Saturday Mass to our people so that they can take Sunday as a day of rest. And they said, if that's not permissible, we have a very creative workaround. They said, we would like permission to celebrate Sunday Mass at midnight, which I thought was very creative. And Cardinal Cushing wrote back and he said no to the midnight Mass thing, but he said, I will request permission from the Vatican to enable you to celebrate Mass on Saturday night. And he received that permission. And so that enabled him to actually grant that dispensation to any parish that requested it. So a fun fact and a little known fact, a heretofore unknown fact, is that the Saturday Mass came to the Archdiocese of Boston to give workers a day of rest. I think that's very cool. Well, and let me also, just to add to this, so in addition to it being innovative on the Catholic front with the example that you just gave, it also seemed as if St. Mary's was in the height of kind of turf wars among various gangs and things like that. Am I correct that St. Mary's was seen in many ways as a kind of neutral ground where these warring factions could meet and maybe reconcile with one another? And could you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. So as the situation in Roxbury and the surrounding areas deteriorated by the 70s, especially the 80s, the 90s, Roxbury really became the epicenter of really profound gang violence in Boston. And in Boston, most of the gang cultures were organized around sort of residential areas and neighborhoods and streets and housing projects and things like that. And because Roxbury and Eggleston Square, which is the little micro neighborhood where this parish is located, was situated at a public transportation crossroads that also made it a hotbed of gang activity because gang members and residents from all over the city would have to travel through Eggleston Square in order to get home. And St. Mary's was situated in that space as this space of peacemaking. In the late 1970s, a young, very young diocesan priest named Father Jack Rusin had been assigned to St. Mary the Angels. It was his second parish assignment ever. So he was 30 years old, very young, funny, idealistic. He was a huge smoker, apparently. So he was always outside hanging out with the gang members on the block, offering him a cigarette, striking up a conversation. And very quickly, actually, really won the affection and the respect, not only of the the matriarchs of the community, but also of these teen guys who were causing damage to one another's lives and hanging out on the block every night. And through his work, through the work of Sister Catherine McGrath, who's actually still at St. Mary of the Angels, through the work of a number of other religious sisters, really made St. Mary's into the space of profound reconciliation among different groups of people and different sort of warring actions of the Roxbury youth. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Susan Bigelow-Reynolds. She's Assistant Professor of Catholic Studies at Candler School of Theology at Emory University. Today we're talking about her recent book, People Get Ready, Ritual, Solidarity, and Lived Ecclesiology in Catholic Roxbury. We'll be back in just a moment. 
Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're delighted today to be speaking with Susan Bigelow Reynolds. She is Assistant Professor of Catholic Studies at Candler School of Theology at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Today, we're talking about her recent book, People Get Ready. Ritual, Solidarity, and Lived Ecclesiology in Catholic Roxbury. Well, listeners who have been hearing me introduce you through these various segments have heard this word again and again. It's a very technical word, ecclesiology. I wonder if you could briefly explain to my listeners what this particular theological term means. Sure. Ecclesiology is a word that means our theology of church. So essentially, it's our way of speaking theologically about the nature and mission of the church in the world. Well, and so in your introductory chapters to your book, People Get Ready, you lay out that your examination of this church there in Roxbury, St. Mary of the Angels, is not going to be just a kind of ethnography of the church, but you're really going to do a theological reading of the church. And in the process of that, you make a suggestion that I'd like to invite you to expand on here with my listeners. You suggest that in the wake of Vatican II, there was this desire for the church parish to become a kind of center of community, and as you described it in the last segment, a a kind of constant working out of what it means to be parish. But you suggest, and if I get this wrong, please feel free to correct me, but I read you a suggestion suggesting that in the wake of Vatican II, the Catholic Church hierarchy stopped short of really implementing that, and they had a kind of, this will be my word, deficient vision or model of what ecclesiology in the post-Vatican II world could be. First of all, do I have that right? And if so, what was the deficiency or the obstacle? Where did they stop short? Yeah, I think that's fair. After Vatican II, a funny thing happened. People really seized on this notion in Lumen Gentium of the church as the people of God. And I think even more than a theological notion, really a reclamation of a deep ancient understanding of what it means to be a people journeying with and toward God, the notion of peoplehood really ignited the the Catholic imagination in a way that I think few other outcomes of Vatican II did. And by the 1980s, There was a concern on the part of church leaders, particularly Pope John Paul II and Cardinal Ratzinger, who became head of the CDF, that this notion of the church as the people of God had begun to get a little out of hand. People were interpreting this, they feared, in this sort of overly democratic way. They had too high of an expectation about lay authority and lay leadership. There was a fear on the part of those responsible for keeping the doctrine of the church sound, that essentially things were getting too progressive. And as a result, there was a pendular swing encapsulated by this this synod in the 1980s, in which communion, not the people of God, but communion was declared to be the fundamental ecclesiology of the Second Vatican Council. And you might listen to that and say, well, that's nice. We, I like communion. Communion is what I love communion. The problem with communion is that in some way, in practice, when we say, well, what is the church? Well, the church is communion. What does that mean? 
right? What does that mean on the ground? We can begin to approximate perhaps in our highest sort of imagination or spiritual imagination what that might mean in heaven, right? Or on a deeper level. Um, But it's really hard, I think, to figure out in the here and now in a world that's broken, that's riven by, by sin, by racism, by political divisions. Think of your community. Think of your parish right now. Maybe you belong to a marvelous parish that has no problems. So in that case, think of like your mom's parish, right? There's always some other parish in your life. What does communion mean there, right? And how is it practiced? What I want to argue in that first part of the book, not it isn't that communion ecclesiology, as it's called, this notion of unity and diversity in the church in relationship, that's lovely. I think that's a lovely concept. The problem is that in the world that we live in here and now, it makes a very poor template for figuring out what we're supposed to actually do to our neighbor. And I think it also helps, it gives us an out, right? An exculpation mechanism in some way for saying, well, I'm in communion with my neighbors because we are all one in the sacrament of baptism. We're all one at the table of the Lord. How lovely that we all receive the Eucharist alongside each other. And so God will work everything out. And I think I'm doing pretty good. The thing that I lament in that first part of the book is that Vatican II actually gave us all of this marvelous language of solidarity as what I think is a much more adequate template for trying to describe the mission of the church in the here and now. Because solidarity, I think, is what communion looks like in practice. Well, and this is exactly where I want to turn now, is to begin to develop what you say here in the book, and that is, we can look at St. Mary of the Angels there in Roxbury as an example or a template in some ways for what solidarity in practice begins to look like. And you make the argument, and again, these will be my words, that perhaps a parish like St. Mary of the Angels is the most visible realization of the aspirations of Vatican II for what a parish could be. Is that too grand to say, or would you feel comfortable with that kind of phrasing? I think It's adequate insofar as we recognize perhaps that we're called to what Dean Brackley so memorably termed a kind of downward mobility. I was talking to someone once and they and they said something to the effect of, gosh, I just I feel like every parish should be like this. And it made me laugh because there's St. Mary's is a really poor community. It's a struggling community, and I don't want to romanticize it, right? There are things about St. Mary's that even, that drive me crazy still. As Of course, I just simply adore this community more than I can even say. But no place is perfect. But what I think St. Mary's does a really gorgeous job of showing us as an example is what it means to be a poor church for the poor, which is what Pope Francis, of course, has said so many times and calls us to. I think a place like St. Mary's, for me, right, when I'm there, and I was just there last month, most recently, it kind of poses this question to me of who are you for? Who is your work for? Who are you doing this for? Who are you with? To whom are you accountable? And I think that's a question that we all have to answer, frankly, in our work. And so in that sense, I think it is a model. Well, and so let's dig into this notion of solidarity, 
because you've mentioned it here in our conversation. You talk about it in detail in your book, People Get Ready. But maybe my listeners have heard the term at one point or another in the past, but they don't really have a good grasp on what solidarity is and what it means. So if you could give us a few sentences on that would be very helpful. Sure. When it comes to solidarity in a theological key, what I like to say is that solidarity is a soteriological concept. What does that mean? That means that when we talk about solidarity, fundamentally we're talking about salvation, salvation in a temporal sense and salvation in an eternal sense. It's essentially a way of saying that my salvation here and now and in the world to come is bound up with your salvation. My good cannot be understood apart from your good. And it's meaningless for me to work for my own good because ultimately our goods are bound up together. And furthermore, right, I think again, and for speaking theologically, to talk about solidarity is essentially to say that this is our mission here on earth, right? That we're relational creatures and that nobody is saved on their own, right? We're saved as a people (laughs) and placing myself in this life in situations that force me and and prompt me and invite me again and again to recognize that fundamental interconnectedness of all humanity is the shape of vocation, I think. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Susan Bigelow-Reynolds. She is Assistant Professor of Catholic Studies at Candler School of Theology at Emory University. We're speaking today about her recent book, People Get Ready, Ritual, Solidarity, and Lived Ecclesiology in Catholic Roxbury. Well, At this point, we've talked about two parts of the subtitle of your book. We've talked about ecclesiology. We've talked about solidarity. I now want to ask you about ritual, because one of the claims that you make is that the ways in which this parish there in Roxbury, St. Mary of the Angels, begins to enact this kind of solidarity that you're talking about, where we're saving ourselves both for the world to come, but also we're involved in the salvation process in the here and now, you talk a lot about how ritual plays a part in that. And I want my my listeners to understand what you mean by ritual, because I think that there can be a cloudy sense of that, but clarify that for us. Absolutely. Often when we think of ritual, we think of it in a pejorative sense. Oh, I'm just going through the motions or doing something in a ritualistic way, but I want to reclaim ritual for the good. <laughs> and I would invite listeners to think about some ritual of which they were recently part, maybe a funeral, for example, which is like a ritual par excellence. Maybe it was a family dinner. Maybe they have a nightly ritual of going for a walk with their elderly neighbor. Fundamentally, I think ritual is its bodily action that invites us to perform ourselves into the kind of community that we wish we could be all the time. Think about what we do for your listeners who are Catholic. Think about what you do during a mass, right? We enter, we sit with strangers, (laughs) close to strangers in pews, uncomfortably close sometimes to strangers, right? We sing together communally. We stand, we sit, we exchange a sign of peace. We hug we shake hands, we drink from a common cup. If your diocese is doing that in the post-COVID area, mine just started again. We, we share bread from a common bowl. We kneel together. We say common prayers together. We sing common songs. All of these things that in some way, I think at our best, we might look at our neighbors and say, gosh, I just, I wish there were some way of showing you what you meant to me. 
But we can't just go up to somebody in the grocery store and be like, don't you just feel like we're all fundamentally related? (laughs) That would be very creepy. But when we're in ritual space, in some way, we have this embodied template, almost like dance steps, right? For doing the kind of things we wish we could always do, maybe performing ourselves into the kind of people we maybe at the core of things believe that we might be underneath it all. Well, and I want to now take you back to an earlier part of the conversation where you described the sort of after the English language mass portion and before the Spanish language mass portion, people were gathering in the parking lot, they were gathering in the parish hall, they were hugging each other. They were genuinely and generally doing what Catholics don't do after Mass or before Mass, and that is to really enact community in real time with each other. And I want to connect that to this idea of ritual, because in addition to all the things that you just said that happen in worship, you also mentioned, for example, that every parish council meeting was bilingual, or in some cases trilingual, and so it moved very slowly, but it included everybody. And I want to ask you, was that also a kind of intentional action, a kind of ritual that helped to build the kind of community that you saw there at St. Mary of the Angels? Absolutely. The parish council meetings would always start with this bilingual recitation of the parish mission statement, which had been co-constructed by parishioners about 20 years ago. And then afterwards, there would be an invitation for people to reflect on where they saw the mission statement in action. In another part of the book, I talk about the ritual of welcoming visitors, people who are, they said, people who who are here for the first time or people who had been away for a while in return in both masses. And there was this sort of ritual around welcoming visitors during the announcements, which is its own kind of ritual, right? There's all these little ritual moments in the life of a parish that aren't disconnected from the liturgy, but they're not the liturgy. I think often when we think about ritual and parish, we think immediately and exclusively about the Eucharistic liturgy. But that's only one of many rituals that our parishes perform. And what I I guess if I could commend one thing to listeners, right, it would be that all of those rituals, the entire ritual ecology of a parish or a community matters. These little moments form us, right? And they form us in a profound way. So I'm going to ask you now to think about your audiences, because anytime that a book is crafted, this is one of the first questions that an editor will ask. To whom are you writing? I'm going to imagine that you are writing to two audiences primarily here. You're writing to Catholic lay people, but you're also writing to Catholic leadership, And I'm going to invite you now, if you could put this book in the hands of a Catholic layperson, what do you hope that they would get out of the book? And if you could put this book into the hands of Catholic leaders, what do you hope that they would get out of the book? That's a fabulous question. I think that for the average Catholic lay reader, what I would like them to see is that Another world is possible with respect to the parish. And by possible, I mean, in fact, already here in different places and perhaps right under their nose. But I think there's a tremendous and in some ways understandable disenchantment with what parishes are. The pandemic was this sort of forced break for people to pause their participation in their local community when parishes shut down. And I know 
many people, many devout people who never went back after that because it ended up being a moment of reflection for them saying, I didn't miss this as much as I thought I would. Or when I take a step back, I can see there are actually a lot of problems with this community. And what I want to say is that when we return to the documents of the Second Vatican Council, when we read deeply the histories of our own communities, not just really interesting, quirky communities like St. Mary of the Angels, but our own communities, when we retrace the steps of the people who fought for these communities and founded these communities and who made big mistakes along the way. There's so much there that's worth marveling at. And it, in some way, it, it's kind of, I think these histories can be a little bit redemptive for us in our sort of disillusioned age. I would like Catholic leaders to come away from this book marveling at the trust that laity deserve. When I read the history of St. Mary's, what I see is a community of lay people who are unwilling to let their neighborhood and their parish die. And neighbors who came together and fought for their youth, they fought for their families and the mothers and the poor, and they fought for the parish itself. And during decades and decades of institutional divestment, decades in which the parish was really abandoned, not only by political authorities, by the government, by the city, but also really by the church. It was these communities of predominantly women, but lay people who came together and through creativity and resourcefulness and faith and a tremendous amount of joy and conviction sustained this community for the life of the neighborhood and for the life of their own souls. When I think about the current synod on synodality, the the word that I keep being struck by over and over, and, and part of it is a translation thing. Some of the translation, you can still really, you get the romance languages in there a little bit that are anglicized, but the word protagonist is used over and over again. And not in the sense that we typically use it in English or, you know, like the main character of a book, right? Protagonist as in like an agent, like all of us, the idea that all of us are protagonists in the church. And I don't think most people feel like protagonists in the church. I think they actually feel like objects of suspicion in the church. I would say very few people, I think, would call themselves ecclesial protagonists. But in fact, that's what we are and that's what we're called to be. And I think that the story of St. Mary's is a story of a community that understood and continues to understand its call to be agents, to be protagonists. And I think that's something that church leaders would do really well to trust. Well, Susan Bigelow-Reynolds, I have been a fan of your work for a long time now. I began following you with your popular writings that occur in religious magazines to lay people. And I was curious how this writing would translate into a more technical book, and I was delighted to discover that even though 
this book is really well constructed in terms of just going deep with the technical ideas and the theological pieces that are in play. At every point, I found it still to be very accessible, very readable. I know that my listeners who dive into your book will be richly rewarded for all the work that you put into it. So I want to thank you, first of all, for the time and work that it clearly took to write a book that was this clear. But I also want to thank you especially for talking about it with me and my listeners today. This was such a delight. Thank you so much for having me. We've been speaking today with Susan Bigelow Reynolds. She is Assistant Professor of Catholic Studies at Candler School of Theology at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. We've been speaking today about her recent book, People Get Ready, Ritual, Solidarity, and Lived Ecclesiology in Catholic Roxbury. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.